Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thank you again for joining me here at the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 29. This week, we resume our conversation with Ryan Howison. Ryan played professionally on the Web.com Tour and the PGA Tour. After an outstanding 1999 season on the Web, Ryan went back to the PGA Tour during Tiger Woods' era of dominance. If you didn't catch the first part of our conversation, go check out episode 24. Ryan shared with us his start in the game, which was incredibly unique. He was a college baseball player at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, didn't play college golf. Anyway, it's a fascinating listen. Go check out episode 24. Actually, if you want to learn more about our podcast and listen to all of the previous episodes, head over to thebackoftherange.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you'll find that information in the show notes of this podcast. So let's get back to Ryan Howison here at the back of the range. Before we talk about your second stint on the PGA Tour in 2000, um, what was what was one of the big differences that you saw? I'm sure there were a lot, but what was one of the big differences that immediately hit you when you jumped down from PGA to the web? Well, and there's there's the obvious differences, and you were playing for a whole lot less money. Is, is the level of competition different? Did you see something that really jumped out at you when you went to that tour, or uh, was it guys that were just as good enough to be on the PGA Tour that uh, were working their way back? What I think I noticed the most was the the top 30, 30 to 40 players in the world were just so much better than everybody else. The Ernie L's and the, the Normans and the Faldos and, and people like that. They were just heads and shoulders above everybody else. But then when you got down further than that, there was times when guys would play phenomenal, but then there would also be times when they would play very mediocre. And on the web.com tour, the guys who would play great were never as great as the top 30 players in the world that you had seen. Um, but they were, they were extremely talented. But then a lot of the other ones, and I would probably throw myself in many years into this category, were still trying to find their way still working on their game, trying to get to the next level versus the PGA tour. You're at the ultimate level. So now it's time to perform on the, on the web.com. You're sort of still in that trial mode. You know, if I tweak my swing here, can I get up to the PGA tour? If I work on this or if I work out more, if I change my diet, can I get to the PGA tour? So there still was, they were working towards getting better Versus the PJ Tour was more working about getting it done. Right. So I kind I noticed that. So when I went back to the, the tours, I focused more on getting it done. So I was on the PJ Tour. I was trying to get a lot better. But when I went back to the web, I would try to get better. But when it was game time, I said, "Whatever I have, I'm gonna I've got to play with. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop trying to work on my swing while I'm playing." Versus I need to pay bills and I need to try to get back out. Because once you've had a taste of it, yeah. you certainly want to get back. Because you're treated like royalty when you have no reason to be treated that way. They definitely <laughs> treat you far better 
they treated me far better than I deserve to be treated. So you, you make your way back onto the tour. Uh, you, you, I'm assuming because it was more of a, uh, a battlefield promotion with, with having the two wins in 99. So you, you finished, you finished up on the, the money list in, in 99, you're back on the tour in 2000. So you're there before tiger and you get back basically at his, I mean, we can argue about what the height of tiger woods is, but it's the year 2000. So he's got a couple majors, you know, 97 masters has already happened. What did you see different on the tour in 2000 that you saw in 95? There was a lot more excitement going on, especially events that Tiger would play in. And I would always, if I had a tee time at any place close to Tiger's, which generally was not on the weekends. So if I happened to, you know, many times I'd have a, a late tee time on Thursday or Friday, which is not the ideal tea time. You'd rather tee off sort of, you know, um, early to mid of the two different waves. That's where the champions played. So if I, if Tiger was teeing off at, you know, eight o'clock and I was teeing off at nine ten, I would try to get to the range early and I'd ask my caddy, I said, put my bag as close to Tiger's as you can get. Cause I wanted to watch in person what he was doing. Part of that was demoralizing because I remember at Disney one year. Kind of a masochist, got, aren't you? You just really. Yeah, well, a little bit. I'm, I'm exactly right. So, but I, I wanted to see it. You know, I mean, he was making history. So I remember he was on five iron when I got to my bag. But I'm taking mental note. I'm not watching him hit every shot. But I'm watching him hit enough. I'm taking mental note of his trajectory, the height, and where the ball was landing. So, you know, and I'm loosening up with my sandwich like you know, most every pro does. And, you know, then Tiger goes through the rest of his bag, his three wood and his driver, and goes back down. Then he leaves and he goes and tees off. So as I get to like my five iron, I'm hitting half as high and three quarters the way as far. Now, when we I got to my driver, I'm not even getting close to where his three wood was going, let alone the height. And I'm thinking to my – or the or – the consistency for that matter. I mean, Tiger's landing a three wood within, you know, a 10 yard area of five or six swings. You know, and I'm kind of, you know, one's high, one's low, one's right, one's left. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Tiger used to talk about having his A game. I remember thinking I could have my A game and still lose by 15 to this guy. So, um, but it was great to be playing in that, you know, I hate to call it an era, but yeah, I, I agree. 2000 with Tiger was, in, in my opinion, at his ultimate height. You just couldn't beat him. He was playing great. He was making every putt so much so that I called Scotty Cameron after watching Tiger make a boatload of putts and asked him, can you send me Tiger's putter? Because his was a little bit different. Um, Tiger's actually back using that putter now after yeah, playing a nike putter for a long time so i have one of the ones that he had made um you know his says tiger woods and mine doesn't but outside of that <laughs> it's the same putter um his is one 13 majors and mine hasn't played in a major but um besides that we're exactly the same yeah i mean you know, yeah. it's but he could just he just did everything so phenomenally it was 
It was great. And being out there in the atmosphere, even the weeks he wasn't flying, everybody was trying to find a way to beat Tiger. So um, the guys who were really confident back when I was out there in 95 didn't seem quite as confident in 2000 uh-huh. because there's that new sheriff in town who yeah, was right, right. beating everybody and handedly, by the way. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, when and, I when I was researching uh, when I was preparing for for our episode, and I was just looking at the, uh, you know your 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 stint basically before Tiger and after Tiger, that was one of the first things I was like, gosh, I really have to ask you about that because I could have just imagined it. it had to be just night and day, just not even, you know, the money, the crowds, the just the the juice and the action around. Um, yeah, I can just imagine just just a completely different animal. It, it was, and excitement is the only, is the best word I can, I can say to express it. I, I never thought, you know, oh gosh, I'm playing for second because I wasn't playing for first to begin with. <laughs> so um, I actually in, enjoyed it. I, I became a fan of his ability. I never, I, I had a brief conversation with him uh, once or twice, but, so, but I never got to know him. So I, I couldn't tell you from a person what he was like, but I'll tell you what, from a golfer, I was a huge, and and still am a huge fan of his for what he's done for the game, what he's done for the fitness, how the athletes that he's brought into the game, and just for the the overall health worldwide of the game. I I imagine Arnold Palmer had the same effect or, or, you know, I I give Arnold, you know, uh, a tremendous amount of respect, and I think Tiger is sort of in the Yeah, I that was something I was going to ask you, but, but and I would agree that I, gosh, it's just hard to compare the impact that that Palmer had. Uh, you know, Palmer brought golf to TV, but I think Tiger, gosh, yeah, I I don't think we're going to fully grasp what Tiger brought to the game for another ten years. I mean, it's it's massive now, but I think when Tiger is gone. Uh, from from playing competitively, that's what's really going to hit everyone. Like, wow, what this guy did! Uh, you know, there's guys out there that have no idea what he did in 2000 because they were, you know, six years old. So, um, so you 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 play in 2000, uh, and then you go back to Nationwide. So, how many events did you play in 2000? Can't remember at this point. Sort of maybe mid 20s. So I played a, I played a lot more, um, and but still didn't keep my card. And you know, good thing I had sponsors you know, for equipment and logos and things like that. So you know, I always said you you made a profit on the PGA Tour, even if you didn't really play well because you had outside sponsors. Um, it's, that was never the case on the Web.com tour. I mean, you the sponsorships were far less and you had to play well to actually make money. So, but I did, I, I was never able to keep my card by playing out there. So I did, I, I fell back and then, um, then I had a few injuries over the next few years and actually missed most of 2005 with a, with a surgery. And then I started thinking about, you know, at what point now is it time to hang it up? You know, I was getting older. I started thinking, you know, I, I feel like I've I've plateaued. So I'm not getting any better. And now 
because of the tiger effect, everybody else is. Right. Everyone's hitting it further. I remember, you know, back in my day, somebody who drove at 290 was leading the tour. And then all of a sudden, the average is 290. You know, and I I was hitting the exact same distance back then and, and you know, when I stopped playing. So I didn't accelerate. You know, I was sort of treading water. And but I didn't want to. In, in hindsight, if I was thinking about things, I might have stopped playing a couple of years before I did. But it's so hard to get out on either of the two tours because of I had wins on the Web.com tour. I had status through 2008, and I kept telling myself, you know, I would hear my grandfather Jack and in, in, in the back of my head saying, "Avoid the what ifs." So I didn't want to go into business and do what I'm doing today and think, you know, gosh, you had another year or two of status, never know what could have happened. You know, maybe you should have kept trying. And so I, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to postpone the, the next career and I'm going to keep trying. And at least now when I, now that I'm not playing, I look back and said, you know, I gave it everything I had both effort-wise, but also time-wise. And it just, you know, I got as far as I was going to was gonna go. And at the time, you don't realize that, you know, it was, it was a decent career. But now I look back and think, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, guys in, or golfers in the world that had the opportunity to play in one PGA Tour event, let alone be out there for a few years. And the people that I met and the experiences that I have, and and even today, you know, when the Honda Golf Tournament comes down here to PGA, um, PGA National in Palm Beach Gardens, I still go out and I'll walk, you know, the range and I still talk to the tour reps and some of the caddies and a few of the players. And it's kind of like a, it's still a fraternity, just like baseball was back in college. It's a fraternity because there there hasn't been you know, tens of thousands of guys who have played on the PGA tour for multiple years. So you do, you know, I, I did, I had 14 years between the two, two tours. That's meeting a lot of guys, spending a lot of time week in and week out. And I'm glad to say that I still have a lot of great relationships uh, with those guys. And many of them I only keep in touch with that one week out of the year, but it's great to, to see them and catch up with them. Absolutely. Well, I, gosh, I mean, just hearing your story of how you got started, I mean, you have to feel that you just overachieved and you just got to experience so much. Just, I mean, gosh, you spent 14 years between the PGA Tour and the and the web. Um, I'm going to ask you something that's kind of unique that, that I don't get to ask very often. Um, you know, we all see these PGA tour players and web players with, with all these sponsorships, you know, they have club deals and shoe deals and clothing deals. And um, how does that happen? Can you explain to me how that whole process occurs to the point of all of a sudden you're, you're playing on the web, you're wearing whatever. And then all of a sudden now you're on, PGA Tour, and I know you were sponsored by uh, Nikent Golf. I'm sure you had other deals, but can you just explain to our listeners that may not understand how that whole thing works, what the process is of be getting a sponsor, and now you're wearing their clothes or you're playing their clubs? 
Absolutely. Part of it depends on whether you have an agent who is willing to work with you when you're a no name, uh, because you know, like any business, you know, they have there's time commitments that they have, and you know, they have to generate revenue, and they get a portion of the revenue that they generate for you. But I was very fortunate to have an agent who helped me out and made me some introductions. Um, on the web.com, there's not a lot of solic- uh, solicitations going on of people wanting to sponsor you. But some of them, club manufacturers, a titleist, uh, people like that, they would have a standard ball shoe glove deal. So maybe I, I'm just throwing out numbers. I don't know what today's numbers are. Um, I can tell you when I started out, which obviously was you know, eons ago. I remember it was five or $10,000 for the year if you played the ball or foot foot joy shoes and wore wore a titleist glove well for most of us that was a no-brainer because we were going to do that anyways and the fact that they're giving you the equipment and paying you was sort of just yeah (laughs) kind of i I was going to play a titleist i'm going to use a titleist glove i like foot joy shoes and you're giving them to me for free and writing me a check yeah, I, I'll sign up for that. But there weren't a lot of outside deals on the web.com tour. Um, there may be today, but in my day, there wasn't. On the PGA Tour, it's a different story. Because they know there's a, a bigger chance that you're going to be seen by somebody, even if you're not a marquee player, because there's just more people going to tournaments. And, they, and because of that, they tend to value your logo being seen. So I would find internet companies who would say, listen, I, you know, would love to put a logo on your sleeve. And, and usually it's from some type of personal interaction. I always love playing in pro-ams. I, I wanted the guys or, or gals to enjoy themselves and I made some good contacts and then, and I made, you know, my game progressed. They would come to me and say, you know, Hey, we'd be willing to put something on your sleeve and, you know, we'll give you $25,000 for the year to do it. And so, you know, I had a belt company that did the same thing. So next thing you know, you've got two sleeves, you got $50,000 in that. You know, the ball shoe glove deal was now much higher. And then you could throw in an equipment deal. And then back then, they'd also pay you X amount a week to use a driver. So because we have this thing called the Daryl survey, which is where they go through everybody's bag before the first round and they, they write down what you're using. So, you know, that's why somebody like Titleist can say, you know, 120 out of 144 guys used, you know, Titleist ball for the week, just making up numbers. But if you use the driver, they may pay you 500 to a thousand dollars just to use that driver that one week. So you would find, you know, endorsements like that or or benefits like that. The the programs, which I liked playing in anyways, would pay you a lot more. You know, on the web.com, maybe they pay you a hundred dollars to play in a pro am. You know, on the PGA tour, it was a thousand dollars. And I'm thinking, I have to play a practice round anyways. You're gonna I'm gonna play in a pro am or you're gonna allow me to ride in a cart versus walk, which saves wear and tear on me and my caddy. 
and you're going to give me a thousand dollars. Well, this is a no brainer. And it puts so, you in front of business people that could potentially help you further down the road. I mean, you're getting paid to basically network. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would love to go back and do it all over again because some of the business people that I played with, you know, now, and now I own a financial advisory practice and I, I have clients who are people that I've, played golf with some of my biggest clients were people that i met while i was still a professional golfer sure so um yeah i would love to love to go back and and talk to to some of those people and um you know and on that note i always found it very interesting where people will always say how nervous they get at golf and i i say it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done everybody gets nervous playing golf I can remember CEOs of Fortune 500 companies who are in front of boardrooms and on TV all the time, watching them tee up that first ball and the first tee and watching their hand shake. And you're thinking, this person handles billions of dollars every day and they're nervous on the golf course. So, yeah, you know, kind of everyone put, gets nervous. Put, puts things in perspective for you when you're, when you're doing it. Um, I remember in 95, Corey Pavin won the U.S. Open at Shinnecock, and I, I know exactly where I was. I was out in Colorado for the summer with my aunt and uncle, and I just remember him winning that. And then I think it was shortly thereafter, I know he was with Cleveland, and I'm sure you remember the irons I'm about to mention, the Cleveland yeah. VAS irons, right? Yep. Okay. And he went to those, and, I mean, Pavin was just such a purist. I mean, I think on the senior tour now, he still has a bullseye putter. And he switched to those. And, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, and just Google Cleveland VAS irons, and you'll see that what I'm talking about. The yeah, ugliest thing you've ugliest ever seen. Ugliest thing you've ever seen. Purple uh, badge on the back cavity and, and the the the... I, I really can't describe the hosel was terrible. The, I can't describe the club. It's awful. Go Google it. I'll put a link in the show notes of this episode so you can see a Google image of it. But my roundabout way of getting to this question is how often did you see players switching to equipment that you knew it was just a money grab? Fairly often, myself included. Okay. So when I first got my PGA Tour card, and I knew I wasn't getting into golf tournaments. And I was had been using a, um, I believe, a, a Titleist golf ball. And Top Flight, who had a, a ball called a Z Bellata, which yep. was, I remember everyone thinks a Top Flight is just, you know, this rock hard golf ball, but they actually had a tour quality golf ball. And they came to me and offered me $30,000 if I played it for the year. Now, you're talking to somebody who's shocked they're even on the PGA Tour, who biggest paycheck they ever made and thought it was a huge sum of money was $12,000 for winning a tournament, and now is not getting into tournaments, even though I still have bills, and somebody comes and waves $30,000 just to play a golf ball, I jumped all over. I've never even, I'd never even hit the ball. I had them send me some, and I was like, okay, this sounds great. In hindsight, what a silly idea that was. I mean, the probably the most important piece of equipment that you have is your golf ball. It's the only thing that, you know, people care where it goes. And I'm changing the golf ball to make money. But at that point, you know, I felt like it was the right idea. To answer your question, I saw it a fair amount. You know, you'd see guys 
um, switch to different equipment. You know, Nike in recent times, Nike was making equipment. Now, a lot of the equipment that manufacturers made that they sold on the shelves was not what the tour players were actually using. And I don't think that's any surprise to anybody. Right. But a lot of guys who signed with Nike, these very lucrative, tried to fit the equipment to them instead of going out and finding the equipment that worked for them. So, and I can't, I can't say it, and I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but it's seeming, it seemed to me that guys who struggled um, after changing equipment, they didn't switch to it because they said, you know what, this is great equipment and let's see if, if they'll sign me. It, I, it felt to me, and I didn't have first-hand knowledge, but it felt to me of, oh, you're going to offer me this, so I'll find a way to play it. Very much like I did with that golf ball. Sure. Well, and and yeah, I'm not asking you to put anyone else's, uh, you know, to mention anyone by name, but just by you uh, basically uh, confirming my question, I'm, I would have to go out on a limb and say you're not the only one that's done that. So, so there you go. Um, so, so you play, you, you kind of come to the end of it around 07, 08 on the nationwide tour. Um, before you transitioned into your career now, which is a financial advisor, you actually had a stint in, uh, in my profession and boy, that's sarcasm. But anyway, um, my, uh, <laughs> you were in, you were in the golf media, you worked for golf channel, you did some on course reporting for them. How did, how did that come about? Um, especially since at that time it was not the the juggernaut that that the golf channel is now uh how how did that come about it was interesting it was i was playing in some you know what's now the web.com tour events jerry fultz who is still with the golf channel had stopped playing to become a full-time golf announcer and i happened to meet some of the producers of the um of the uh, Keith Hirschman was the producer's name. And for some reason, he thought I might be decent at announcing. So he asked me one tournament when I had a morning Thursday tea time. He said, when you get done playing, would you like to try doing some announcing? I think they were one announcer short for the week, and I can't remember why. And I said, Sure. So I get done, I sign my scorecard after 18 holes, they take me to the equipment truck, they strap on this power pack with a microphone, and they send me out on the golf cart out to the hole. And then they would just start speaking to you, as, as, as you know, being in the business, they speak in your headset and they say, you know, Ryan, we're going to come to you in a minute, we're going to show such and such shots, and basically tell us what you think the golfer is facing or what they're thinking or something like that. And so I did. And, and I, I seemingly thought it was, it was a lot of fun and apparently I did it okay because they kept asking me to do it over and over again for a few years, primarily events that I was already playing in. So, which was good for them because they didn't have to pay my travel expenses yeah, and put me up in a hotel and things like that. So I was fairly cheap labor. They would pay me a, you know, a daily rate. And what I loved about it was all you were doing is saying what you would have been thinking as a golfer. So you're thinking about the lie. You're thinking about the shot. You're thinking about the, the hazard, where you want to put it, what the wind's going to be doing, things like that. 
and you would just articulate it in a microphone. The tough part about it, and anyone who's done this, is you have people ch chatting in your ear while you're talking, and you're trying to listen to them at the same time of continuing to speak as if you know nobody's talking to you. And that took a little bit of getting used to, but I used to love doing it. And then they invited me to do a couple of PGA Tour events where I wasn't flying in because I wasn't on the tour at that point. And I really enjoyed doing that. And then I did a, a, at least one Q school that I had made it to the finals on. So I had a great time doing the announcing. I thought it was um, a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Uh, part of it is they can make you look great. I used to tell people all the time. I remember walking into a in a locker room one time after I just finished. I think Jason Gore came up to me and he said, "Man, you called that shot on 15, also." And he, you know, he spun it back off off the off the ridge. And what had happened? Somebody, had, you know, before they hit the shot, before they saw them hit the shot, I said, "You know, the ideal shot is you hit a little bit left of the hole. You use the ridge, you spin it back to the hole." He goes, man, it was awesome that you called it, and that's exactly what happened. I said, Jason, that shot had happened like two minutes before I called it. <laughs> so they had taped it, and they said, okay, now, Ryan, I want you to call the shot you just saw as if it just happened live. So you could make yourself look like a genius right? because right. you had already seen the shot happen. So oh, I was getting a big kick out of this that. This is perfect. You're just like, you're, you're coming from, or you're showing us behind the curtain. So basically there's a lot of times when you're out there calling these shots, you already know what's happening. Yeah. You're just, you're, man, you're giving our listeners a little bit of a, a peek behind the curtain here of the golf channel and, uh, and, and, you know, golf broadcasts uh, all over the world. <laughs> so perfect. Um, so, you um and again just to kind of you know go back to how you i guess got into golf a little bit uh, i mean i don't want to say backwards but you really didn't have the amateur career to lead you into the pro ranks you started basically as a pro and now you've recently you got your amateur status back and you're playing amateur golf again so you if i remember correctly you just got into your first usga amateur event was it last year at the U.S. Mid-Am? I did, last summer. So when I decided to stop playing golf, I didn't think about playing any types of tournaments. So there went several years where I didn't do anything. And then I went to, somebody invited me to play in a member guest up north. And it was, it was a member guest I really wanted to play in. And then they called me a few weeks ahead of it and said, you know what? They just found out that you're still technically a professional and they don't, they sort of frown on professionals playing. And I thought to myself, well, that kind of stinks because I haven't played a professional event in five years. Sure. So, or four years, whatever it was at that time. And I said, you know what? I want to play in these fun events. You know, golf is no longer all about competition it's about the camaraderie and having a good time and good experiences and playing a lot of these great venues throughout the country and meeting great people i said so there's no point in me having professional status anymore i'm not playing as a professional so i applied for my amateur status back it took years to get back and then in uh, may of 2014 i was granted my amateur status which has been a lot of fun because i can now play in you know, local county events, which we have a great you know, section here, county section of events with great players. 
I play in member guests all over the country, playing some extremely nice golf courses, and just have had a great time doing it. You know, you get a little taste of competition, but you also get the um, sort of relaxed social aspect of if you make a double bogey, who really cares? Exactly. So did you have any of the same kind of nervousness or apprehension about playing at that stage? Or was this just pretty much comfort level back at it again? I'll just kind of, uh, you know, fall back on my experiences playing professionally. Yeah, I would uh, definitely the latter. So it was, I was more excited to have qualified for it because, you know, it's kind of one of those you check off. I had not played a USGA event, you know, as neither a junior nor as a professional. So I, w- I wanted to play in one. So qualifying last year to get into it was sort of the the, the goal. Going to play in it was sort of just, uh, now I'm just going to have a good time. Sure. So I had a good uh, college baseball teammate of mine who lived in Atlanta. He came and he, you know, he caddied for me. Um, it was a golf course, two golf courses. Uh, one of them, the primary course, way too long for me. You know, when you hit it, 250, 260 off the tee, and, and the, you know, you're playing with 25 to 30-year-olds who are hitting it, you know, 300. You just, it, you know, I'm back to using the excuses, but excuses, I'm just not built for playing a 7,200-yard par 70. So um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'd be better off at you know, 6,200 yards. Sure. So, but it was a great experience. It was fun. had a good time. Um and you know, I'm I'm glad that I was able to do it. I've got a got a nice little tea gift for being there, so something to remember. Yeah, and and you know, I've asked, I've interviewed people for the podcast in the you know previously that are professionals that have gotten their amateur status back. Uh, our first episode, actually, you know, Steve Anderson, who's out of Hope Sound, Florida, and uh, he's an Ohio guy as well, and he played professionally and has played in a lot of USG events. Um, what is your opinion of professionals that get their amateur status back? I mean, there's a certain level of, um, you know, giving it a shot on the mini tours as opposed to playing on the PGA tour or playing, uh, on the mini tours. Um, do you have any sort of an opinion of pros that get their status back? I think it depends on what the, what the motivation for getting your amateur status back is. So, for me, it was more to play in member guests and enjoy meeting people and playing with members and playing with clients and and playing some of these great golf courses, you know, around the country that maybe otherwise I would not have the opportunity. Sure. Uh, the guys who get their amateur status back, and I and I can't say that I know any um, that did this, but I think the persona is the people that get their amateur status back so that they can then go and play in amateur tournaments and have a better chance of winning. I'm not a fan of that. So, you know, I, I played in my, you know, the USGA event, which the Mid-Am, which is anyone over the age of 25 who's an amateur. I was, I was 51. Right. So, um, you know, I, I didn't have any kind of, misconceptions that I had a chance of going and, and winning. I mean, obviously you want to think you do, but I was a realist. Right. You're so not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I didn't get my amateur status back so that I could go try to win 
golf tournaments. Um, when I'm playing in member guests, somebody can say, well, we get are still playing in member guests. Well, it's, it's handicapped. You know, I'm, I have, a, I carry a handicap, so I'm not really, there's no advantage whether I'm a pro yeah, or I'm an amateur. I'm still at the same handicap. You're just getting and, the status back so you can actually go sign up and join your friends and play these things. It doesn't matter it, if you're right. Yeah. It, it, exactly. So a little different than if you're, you know, playing every day and then you say, you know, I want to go play in the USAM or, you know, do something like that and have a chance to win because basically you're still a professional and you've just deemed yourself an amateur. And like I said, I don't know that that anyone has done that, but I can see where people would frown upon that. Um, I did it just quite frankly because I didn't like being ousted from a member guest when I you know, because I was a professional, even though I wasn't you <laughs> I hadn't playing played professional, professional events in, in years. Right. Well, you've been, uh, you've been very gracious with your time. I have just a couple quick questions here. We have a segment here at the back of the range called the quick bucket. These are just rapid uh, questions. So we'll, we'll get you out of here pretty quickly. Uh, Tiger winning a green jacket versus Jack winning his sixth green jacket in 1986. Uh, which would be the bigger, more substantial victory in your mind? Well, I'm a huge Nicholas fan. Um, I will always side with with Jack when it comes to something like that. Um, and one of the reasons that you know any of us that live in Palm Beach County, he is so gracious with his time and energies, and and you know everybody has gotten the chance to get to know him around here and in the family. So you definitely pull for, you know, Jack and I would say winning it at age 46 when he hasn't really done much in a few years versus, you know, Tiger winning at 40, what he'd be 42 next year um, or 43. 43, and, And he's won a major, I guess, four years ago. I would still have to say, you know, that Jack, I think he was 19, 1980 and then 1986. That's so I correct. think Tiger won in, what was Tiger's last one? Or has it been? No, Tiger's actually, Tiger's been actually oh, 10 years. It was 2008. Yeah, it was 2008. So, you know, I, I take that back. Um, being a, you know, a Nicholas fan my whole life and, you know, obviously Jack being from the Columbus, Ohio area, I would, I, I tend to knee-jerk reaction side with, with Jack. But I think that if Tiger, Tiger's, win would do more for the game of golf because of his what he's done for golf in his generation so this past masters nobody was pulling harder for him than i was oh yeah absolutely. especially after the bay hill performance and and just seeing what he was doing and hearing how well he played in his practice rounds and things like that i was i was really excited to to watch and, and I'm not a big TV watcher of golf anymore, but when Tiger plays and he's playing well, I watch. The other question I have for you is: so you have this you you have this baseball background. Um, any superstitions? You know, baseball players are very superstitious. Any superstitions that you had while you were playing? You know, I always said it's bad luck to be superstitious. <laughs> okay. So I um, no, I actually didn't have a lot. Well, I guess I take that back. I 
used to only mark my golf ball with a, with a coin that had a number in the, the 60s, okay. 1968, 69, something like that. Um, I would only mark it heads up. Um, trying to think of some other things. You know, we all have little things where if we stretch a certain way one day or we eat a certain breakfast one day, you know, we play well, we'll do it again. You know, you kind of ride the horse until it doesn't work anymore. Of course. Um, I see a lot of superstitions when I, you know, even watching on TV, guys doing different things and stuff like that. And I always think it's, it's interesting and um, it's fun. And, you know, if it helps you play better, you know, golf is so much as we know between the years that if anything gives you that little edge or makes you a little more comfortable or a little more confident, then that's what you're going to do. Are there things that you just mentioned this, that that just kind of spawned this question. Are there things that you see when you're watching coverage as a former PGA tour player that most viewers may not recognize that you're seeing like, wow, this guy's nervous or wow, this guy is really kind of losing it. Are there different things, triggers that you're kind of picking up? I think I, and I don't know if I I see them or other people don't, um, but you can see a lot of facial expressions. Um, I could see recently, I forget where it was, I could see Phil getting nervous. And it wasn't the tournament he won. I can't think of it was the Masters or something else. And I can say, gosh, I've never seen Phil nervous. Um, it must have been Houston because he won it. Yeah, it, it was. It was Houston. Okay. So I, I think maybe things like that. I, um, you can see somebody swing get a, a fraction shorter or a fraction quicker when they're when they're changing things. You know, the the people that really impress me are the people that can really just you know grind it out. Um, I thought. You know, and I, I, uh, Ian Poulter, who I practiced with out at um, in Carlsbad a long, long time ago, I got to know just very briefly. And wouldn't say that I'm a huge Ian Poulter fan, but his performance in Houston was to come down the, the last hole, which I think is about all I, I, I watched of um, after a while. And he, he pipes it down the middle. When he's one back, he hits it on the green and then he drains this, you know, 35 footer or whatever to get into a playoff and comes out in the, in the playoff and does the exact same thing. I thought, you know what? He just manned up right there. Yeah. And I, because I've been in that position, I think I appreciate what he's done maybe more so than other people. Cause I can feel there's, there's no way you can't be nervous. So I always tell amateurs or used to tell amateurs, people will say, you know, how do you go from the range where you're not nervous to the course where you're, you know, how do you, how do you stop being nervous? Well, it's impossible. You, you can't. I mean, Tiger used to say, even in his heyday, he got really, really nervous. It's a human uh, emotion. You, you can't not get nervous, but you can find ways to overcome being nervous and knowing that there's no way that Ian Poulter is not nervous when he knows he has to win for a multitude of reasons. But one really big one is to get in the masters starting the next day. Yeah. And he's able to pull off those shots 
in the last, you know, on 18, you know, playing it two consecutive times, I thought to myself, I'm not a huge Ian Poulter fan, but I am a huge fan of what he just did. Well, I'm, I'm trying to let you go, but you keep coming back with all these great stories. And I, I just remembered before we started recording this, you had a Jim Furyk story you had to tell. So give me your uh, give me your Furyk story. So Jim, really nice guy. And I remember actually tell you quick two quick stories, um, sort of feel good stories. Yeah. Jim was a really nice guy. And I remember when I, um, one of the times I, I think in 95 or I can't remember what year it was. Anyways, I was playing in Hawaii and he came up and he had, we had played sometime a long time before that. I think before he got on the PGA tour and he just treated me like we'd known each other forever. And I really, you know, don't remember anything about that. Um, us playing previously. So I thought it was really nice. And then he and I played, I think later that year, at a practice round in Chicago at the Western Open. And we played nine holes. And when I tell you that if we kept score for the nine holes, he did not break 50, I'm probably underestimating. I have never seen a professional hit it this badly on the golf course. And I thought, you know, we all know he's got a crazy golf swing, but he was a great player. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is like almost embarrassing. And he goes on and he misses the cut. He went out and played the very next week and won. And I thought to myself, how is that possible? I would have given this guy five shots aside last week, and he just won the PGA Tour event the very next week. How can you be how can, one, how can you change your game that quickly? And two, how can you believe in yourself that much to not think of all those shots you just hit the week before yeah. that were so, they weren't just bad, they were embarrassing. And I just thought, man, his mental fortitude has got to be off the charts. And obviously we know, what it, you know, this is, he was a good player then. He's turned into just, a, you know, one of the all-time you know, great players. The other thing was, um, I remember, Quick story about um, Stuart Sink. So in 1995, I'm playing a pro-am up at Hartford. And we got to the 15th hole, which is a drivable par four. And there was a, a wait. And Stuart is playing in front of me. And he had just graduated college not too long ago. And he was given a sponsor's exemption. And this was his first PGA Tour event he was playing in. So I didn't follow amateur amateur golf, so I didn't really know who he was. But I walked up and he said, you know, he introduced himself and said, how are you doing? He said, you know, this is my first event. I said, well, you know, hey, welcome to the tour, blah, blah, blah. We're sitting, we're just chit-chatting. Didn't think anything of it. Five years later, we're on the range at the Bob Hope out in the desert. And I'm on the range. And Stuart comes walking down and he puts his bag down. And all of a sudden he sees me and he comes walking down three or four different um, spots. And he comes up to me and he said, Ryan, he said, I, I'm glad you get back on tour. He said, you were the first guy ever to welcome me to the PGA Tour. So let me be the first one to welcome you back. That's and awesome. I really thought that was, like, obviously I remember it to this day. I, it just was one of those things where, you know, he was nobody at that time. He was a great college player. But then in that five years, he became, you know, a really 
outstanding PGA Tour player. And for him to take the time and have and to remember that and come up and say that to me, I'm sure he forgot. He's long forgotten that he ever did that, but I'll never forget. No, that's so those are- that just kind of shows some of the the quality of you know the guys out there. They're, they're obviously great players and, and and incredible athletes, and you know the amount of charity work that that they all do. But there's there's some really great guys out there. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to join us here. I, I just phenomenal stories, phenomenal um, insight into not just making it onto the PGA Tour, but the experiences in and around the tour and just the, the track that your life has taken in your career on the golf course. And I know we're going to be playing some Palm Beach County amateur events and uh, hope to see you on the course very soon. Ben, I appreciate you having me. Um, I hope you give me some strokes when we see each other. <laughs> okay. Well, let's not get crazy, but, uh, but Ryan, I appreciate the time. Thanks, Ben. And there you have it. Another great episode here at the back of the range. Special thanks to Ryan Howison for all of this time. Don't worry, we'll be back next week for another episode here at the Back of the Range.